Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 DevOps Lunch and Learn series. The April 27th DevOps Lunch and Learn was about image-based deployment, something that is near and dear to RackN's heart, and we had a whole bunch of RackN engineers uh, in as resources to talk about it. And we, we did talk on some of the tech involved in image-based deployments, but a lot of the conversation was actually about the supporting infrastructure and thought process that goes into building an image-based deployment infrastructure. And so if you're excited about this as a process, you will really enjoy hearing our discussion about the things to consider to make it a workable process and scale. Enjoy the session. So. Today's topic is image-based deployment, and the, the idea of image-based deployment is that when we go do an, a infra, you know, build an infrastructure, we actually uh, start with a system by effectively writing that to disk. Um, that could be that we start like with a VM where it's already on the disk, and we just we just have a we have a clone of an existing system. I would consider that image-based deployment. Um, for us at RackN, image-based deployment usually means that we've captured the image of a system. So somebody's captured that, that material, and then we write it to the disk, uh, fix the partitions so that the system can boot, because um, just computers don't boot out of random disk patterns. They boot out of a system partition and some type of bootstrapping information. Write that to disk, um, and, then, and then boot the machines. Uh, and then... In, that process itself sounds pretty simple. There's some really significant challenges in making that work. One is getting disk partitions in. Another one is the systems that you, you can't have identical systems. So every even if you're going to write clone a disk image, you're going to have to deal with the nuances of the system you're actually dealing with as a factor. Um, and so there's there's a ton of of things that have to be taken care of as a, as a consequence of that. Different operating systems have different rules. Um, and the other thing we found is it's actually a very resilient and fast way to do infrastructure deployments compared to the alternatives, which are, are netboots, bootstrapping systems uh, from scratch every time, um, which was not what I, when I originally thought doing image-based deployments, and then I'll, I'll turn over for questions. Um, and Shane and I were actually walking around, I think, Silicon Valley, Mountain View at the, at the time. Um, and I, he was saying, we should do it this way. And I was saying, no, it's too hard. It's not going to be faster. It's not better. Um, and I was completely wrong. At our experience with image-based deployment um, for, for the added complexity of it at times has been that it's a really good process. Um, and I think one of the interesting themes to me to explore is what you know what would make it more common for people to use the process um in in day-to-day -day use rather than than uh kickstarts precedes or windows install media there's six six dozen things um whew, that was image deployment 101. <laughs> does somebody have a question to start with or is there reckon somebody want to add a add additional clarification. So Rob, I'm, it's okay. I'm used to being discounted with my ideas for usually about 18 months before they fully germinated. 
Yeah, you're too far ahead. <laughs> yeah, a, a um, Ami Amis, uh, depending on your pronunciation preference, is a lot of times I think why people are more interested in bringing it to um, hardware now is that a lot of uh, our customers build um, VMD, VMDKs or VHDs, um, and then they want to use that same process to metal. Um, but it's worth, I mean, there, even, even that process has challenges, right? CloudNet um, is, you know, I, I, I have mixed feelings on CloudNet, and I, I, we could talk an hour probably on that alone. Like, did you have something that you wanted to, were you, you adding that as a, um, well, my, ex my experience with images is in, is in application servers in production. Um, I've resisted doing image deployment of laptops and, um, in the organization because it becomes impossible to maintain a golden image laptop. But in production, we've been doing this for years where, um, we have a base image that has all of our users installed on it and all of the updates installed on the server and all, and the, the runtimes and everything. And then a deployment system, the deployment process in our company is basically you drop the application, the compiled application on that image and create a new image. And once every version of every application is an AMI, if we auto scale, let's say we have to go from 10 to 12 servers in an auto scaling group, the image is already ready to go and the machine could just boot. And so you don't have to go and, you know, clone more images and stuff like that. And also there's the, the advantage of immutable infrastructure um, in general, that all your production machines are fresh clones of an image. So you can just wipe out a, a machine that might be compromised and a fresh image will come up to replace it. You do that. So Mike, I'm curious, I'm curious why you um, say that desktops are impossible to maintain gold masters for. What it, What is your thought process behind that? If I did, let's say we have a laptop. I, let's say I have a, our company works on MacBook Pros, right? So let's say I install I install um, a High Sierra on a laptop, right? And a whole bunch of different software. And then I create an image of that. Now, in, in our specific situation, we're also bound to Active Directory. So anyways, when I clone this image, there's a lot of work that has to go into rejoining it to the domain because you can't rejoin an image to a domain. You need to rejoin it. Um, and you have this laptop sitting in the corner that you're not really allowed to touch. You can't do anything with except for on magical days when you open the laptop, create, do your, do your, your updates, and then, then redo your, your image building process again. And it was just the, I just prefer to be able to script using, even using something like Chef or Puppet or just a bunch of bash scripts. I'd rather just be able to say, okay, I can start from a known clean install of an operating system and run this script or use Jamf, obviously, and get to a usable state for, for a user. That's another thing. If I'm using Jamf, then I can say, okay, this user gets this profile, that user gets that profile. Um, I've just found it very difficult to maintain um, end user devices using images. Sure. Um, but that's a personal preference. 
Well, I think a lot of what you're you're pointing to there is uh, automation tool chain for maintaining that gold master is seems to be sort of at the root of some of the some of the problems. They're not all of them, but being able to revision and update the gold master with the latest set of patches and updates and tooling and tweaks and changes. Um, but you have the secondary problem you brought up, which is patch and update after you've deployed. <clears throat> and I can see from the laptop perspective, people get in, ingrained in their laptop with a billion and six permutations of things and data and updates and changes and tweaks and apps and stuff. So re-imaging a laptop in the field is probably a lot harder um, maintaining data separation from the deployed uh, applications in OS. But, you know, we've, we built um, specifically, I've built some automation around uh, and I don't, haven't done with Mac. So I don't have much experience with uh, imaging and deploying Macs. Uh, they have their own challenges, but from a windows perspective, I've built automation for churning out gold master images, which is pretty straightforward and simple as updating the, you know, some of the JSON spec files and then running it through HashiCorp's Packer tool and then converting that into an image. And then we lay that down to hardware and we have customers in deployment that do that for example, with windows 10 um, video editing workstations for some of the large online streaming uh, companies, uh, media streaming companies, and they do that very successfully. Um, it's a bit of a different use case as it's not a personal laptop situation, but they are Windows 10 desktops with video editing workstation platforms. They check out, it gets imaged with all the latest tools. They do their editing, they return it back to the pool. So it is certainly a different perspective than someone's quote unquote personal laptop. And when um, you when you say you create these images, you, you create when you create a new version of an image, do you create that image from scratch or do you have yeah, every time from scratch? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, well, and primarily also, because particularly the challenges with Windows is updates, right? Because the updates take forever. It takes anywhere from four to eight hours to build a gold master image on a Windows machine. By the time you get done with all the updates and reboot and update and reboot and up and date and reboot, you just want to go nuts. But then the deployment time is sub 10 minutes. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. And I apologize, I showed up late, um, but yeah, I started getting PTSD just listening to this because <laughs> that's how I started <laughs> my career in the early 2000s was doing desktop support and um, doing imaging for a civil engineering firm here in the Carolinas um, who was growing. They were hiring like three to 10 people a week. And like, it was me getting all their computers ordered and set up. And that some stuff was really, really easy to image and, and to automate. But then they also had like ArcGIS and Esri software and AutoCAD. And like, there's automation mechanisms for doing that, but man, they're not all pretty. Um, it sounds like we still have a lot of those same issues today. Yeah, um, I, I think it's probably certainly better today. Um, but I think one of the things you're putting your finger on is there are a lot of different ways to do automation and being able to weave all of those different methods for automating things together is very hard. It's a hard problem. And so one of the things that we 
work on solving at Racken, but being able to jump between tools is pretty much a reality in terms of automating platforms and solutions. And, you know, even in the enterprise environment where you're doing, you know, bog standard server deployments, there's so many different tool chains you have to bring together to successfully automate uh, platforms and environments. Um, one of the other things Mike touched on was the post uh, bootstrap process. That's critically important, um, particularly desktops, like he's talking about joining desktops to so Active Directory, domain controllers, et cetera. Um, you have to be able to do a, a bit of post deployment bootstrap. And um, that's also touching on the sort of AMI story and the uh, cloud init process is one of those ways to be able to um, post deploy, do that uh, bootstrap customization of the, the machine and giving its personality and, and, and joining clusters, joining domain controllers, whatever the, the, the problem might be where you need to continue your automation, not only from automating building the images, but to automating deploying the images, but automating the post-deployment customization pieces uh, successfully. That That is, it's a whole arc, right, from beginning to end. It's not just one piece or the other. You got that right. <laughs> I still I still have our domain password memorized from that period of time because I had to use it so much. <laughs> it's just ridiculous because it, you know you'd have to use it to. I mean, we didn't we didn't really have good imaging options for you know that that personality on the network. That was one thing that was still fairly manual. Um, I don't remember us ever being able to solve that. I mean, has that improved or is it still, you know, uh, an engineer admin, somebody entering that in? We would like to think we've solved it, but you know, this is, this is a general discussion, not a sales pitch. <laughs> so um, we have tools for approaching that problem. Um, we, we have tools for uh, both the, the, the pre, during, and post automation pieces and um, infrastructure as code applied to describing the configuration problems and challenges and the, the configuration uh, data itself separated from the configuration tooling itself and being able to, to do that. Um, it is a, a hard challenge uh, for sure. Uh, even when you have good tools, it's still a challenge uh, dealing with you know, security of secrets and tokens and passwords and uh, integrating with the network, integrating with the servers, integrating with, cl you know, cluster integrations. Yeah, there's a lot. Rob? Um, um, well, I was thinking about um, one of our first customers on the Active Directory side, um, and Greg probably has even more details than I have, but they, they were trying to, they had a deployment process that was taking like four hours and once we sat down with them and started figuring out what was going on, like an hour of it was waiting for the Active Directory system to settle. Or it, was, it wasn't maybe an hour. It was, it was like one of the longest tasks was registering the system in Active Directory um, and then waiting for it to propagate to then go ahead and say yes. Uh, the, the system was okay to go. And um, I think we ended up decoupling the tasks as part of the workflow um, and, and that, which is 
one of the things, Josh, that I think you can do with, with the automation is you can break it into the, the APIs are better than they used to be, but you can break it into a into steps and say, all right, I'm I'm authorizing this system when it shows up, you know, you can let it onto the network. But that process for this customer was taking a long a significant amount of time. And then that can break automation too if you have things that time out after 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah. I I remember PowerShell Active Directory for PowerShell and uh, Exchange Server 2007 being very excited when we started being able to tease some of those things up. But uh, as I'm I'm thinking back, I remember it being uh, very inconsistent in the device successfully being registered and made available. And yeah, that's, 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 it's, it's, it's such a crazy problem. The funny thing is, I don't think that we're like the Linux outside of the house doesn't, and uh, we do a ton of VMware. They don't really solve the problem by being more integrated. They just don't, you know. They, I, I don't, I don't know of, and y'all on the racking team have probably have a better idea of people who are actually doing Kerberos. We have people who are like registering systems of Kerberos post deployment. I think we're. As much as you would think that would be a thing that people would want to do, it's so hard. Um, which is we're straying a little from image deployment, but those are relevant things, right? If you have a system, you clone it and deploy it, and it was on an Active Directory domain or in a Kerberos system or something like that, you're going to, the identity of that system is going to be wonky. Well, and I think from my perspective, you need to decide what you're building an image for. So, some of the people view image deploy systems as this immutable infrastructure kind of deployment, and that's fine. That's a way to do it. But in so doing, you're somewhat losing your anonymity of your systems in that regard. Um, and where we've seen with the rack-in stuff, people be most successful is when they embrace the reality that immutable is usually not enough. You have to do something afterwards. And if you're going to do something afterwards, embrace it enough to actually put enough of a works, workflow system or automation system in place to let you handle those things like, can I successfully add something consistently into Kerberos or rejoin and, and that kind of stuff and go into it with that mindset. And that's actually one of the biggest challenges we've had with regard to dealing with image deploy is getting people to realize or admins to realize that a golden image only gets you so far because usually you always have to change something, right? Either IPing, addressing, right? Names, all sorts of stuff. And you have different classes all the way down to user profiles or application profiles. And getting past the, well, it's only this immutable thing to it's really maybe this immutable thing with additional layers of automation that's going to drive that and embracing and finding your tool sets to enable that quickly helps you get past the, well, how am I now going to go unregister it because it was built registered and stuff like that. Um, that way you have the tools in place to help facilitate that in a faster fashion. That's part of how I would like view some of the laptop problems, right? If I realize it's not necessarily going to be custom, right? It's, there's an element of customization even among all this immutable 
kind of view of the universe. In, in riffing on Greg's point there, that you then delve into a whole world of shades of gray in terms of image deploy versus post-image customization. So, you know, we have customers that run the gamut from, I want a, a naked CentOS image, and I just want to deploy that fast and not worry about uh, package repositories being available or not. And then they come in with Ansible and they do all kinds of stuff with Ansible, but what they don't realize is then they're doing a whole bunch of package installs against package repositories with Ansible. <laughs> and so they've just shifted the problem slightly. Um, and then there's, you know, the full other end of the spectrum is a completely built image that has every application and tool and piece baked into it, which, you know, is getting closer to that immutable infrastructure construct. Um, finding that happy medium oftentimes is a hard, you know, decision process that you have to go through in an operational environment um, and what your goals are that, you know, Greg is sort of touching on and outlining there. Well, you, you touch on also, and I, I put it in the chat, you know, it's engineering rework. So when they manufacture airplanes, right, it goes through the assembly line and a bunch of work is done to build the plane that's been standardized and is understood and known. And then it go, often goes into a process of rework where they apply fixes and things that they had identified as problems in the past, but it it is for whatever reason and for whatever predetermined period of time or undetermined period of time, um, it is more difficult to apply those changes into the core process um, and get it that core process revalidated and recertified and 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 made whole than it is to do the rework afterwards. And you know, I, I anticipate that a lot of, particularly with like desktops and laptops and various endpoints, you probably see a fair amount of that same behavior. Yeah, I think there's some of that um, for companies that aren't investing into the sort of CI, CD, DevOps, um, pre-prod, test, QA, whatever you want to call it or however you want to structure it, structure it sort of environments. <clears throat> they start their automation journey from, uh, I'm in production, I need to automate this. And I think that touches very much along that parallel of the they built a plane and they haven't figured out how to re-pooling to incorporate enhancements, fixes, upgrades, uh, you know, work out the bugs so the plane doesn't nosedive into the ocean um, in the manufacturing process. So I think it's a very relevant um, corollary. Uh, you definitely need to start your journey from the very beginning in incorporating automation to build those images, test those images, val validate and verify those images, update those images, that whole process. And once you do that, your production problems get much easier. They're not going to go away, but they get much, much easier from that perspective. One of the things that um, <clears throat> when I was at Cadence doing uh, release engineering, actually it was QA for release engineering, uh, a lot of these things uh, with engineering rework are business decisions. At Cadence, they had all these complex software products and they would make changes to them and fix bugs and, and add features and whatnot. But 
they didn't want to invest in the QA to make sure that the product, the new version of the product uh, was integrated and worked well. So what was going on at Cadence is they would release two to three CDs of product. You buy a product and you buy the CD and then you apply two to three years of updates to each of the products before they even work. I mean, they wouldn't even start up with what was on the CD. But that was their choice because they're putting onto the customer the cost of doing the final integration QA and removing it from them and so increasing their profits. And with something along the lines of aircraft manufacture, changing an assembly line and QAing that assembly line could be in Boeing's perspective or some of these others more expensive, especially if they're doing it for each different fix, uh, changing the, the QA lot, the manufacturing line, than just putting an engineer on to run through the fixes and do them individually offline. So it's some of the stuff at least is business as opposed to technology decision. but it's a pain in the butt and makes automation a lot more difficult. It's like Shane says, you have to start from the beginning and commit at the beginning. And if there's no commitment from third parties, you've got to deal with that issue. It, it's interesting. Do you think that like people publishing a Docker container or a VHD to distribute software, maybe people don't care anymore, but like, that solves that problem from that perspective? Or are you thinking that that would be a good packaging strategy? And maybe can, you know, maybe all this container work is, is people bypassing some of those problems? Um, in the case of Cadence and the complexity of the products, I think at least in some ways, the company had gotten so removed from the customer that they really mm -hmm. didn't have examples of customer configurations. So they put lots of choices out there and let the customer decide what they wanted or needed and what worked for them. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt, but you didn't. No, it's that in past tense. They still don't care about. I believe that. <laughs> I. I, I I repackage all of their tools as singularity containers because of just how unmanageable their crap is. I mean, the fact that they have a reliance on a Berkeley, Berkeley DB that is no longer available anywhere outside of their distribution because it is so old and it is a requirement. And if you link it to a newer version just to try to patch, you uh, potentially introduce inconsistencies because they rely on a bug in that ancient version of Berkeley DB. But well, they, yeah, and they they didn't they didn't have a commitment to QA, especially at the integration level. So they were while I was there, they were actively removing uh, engineers that would check would be able to do that sort of thing, and 
they actually removed me because there was a fight and between my manager and some other manager and my manager lost because he was on the release side as opposed to the development side. My my first foray into what we now call DevOps was uh, yes. was actually right around the same time that, that DevOps became coined as a thing, but I was working for a company. I was a virtualization engineer and I had finished one of my major projects of P to Ving most of the production um, Linux and, and Windows systems, right? Hundreds of them, like hundreds of them. It was a fun summer. Um, but I was in between projects. And so I decided to start spending time with the developers. And one of them was telling me how they had spent their entire day trying to apply the necessary patches based on the, the specs that were delivered by the, I don't know, the platform team on their, their Linux VMs and, and how it would take them between four and 16 hours to get those updated. And they had to do that every uh, two weeks and sometimes every week, depending on, you know, what, what changed and what new updates came. Um, and I just had this moment of like, well, how much, other stuff do you have to do after you apply those patches all like 25 30 minutes worth of work i was like well what if what if we could just apply the patches to one one vm and then you could deploy that vm at will customize it for what you want and then spend your 20 minutes applying your you know libraries and and other um prerequisites that would be amazing, but why would you tease me like that? <laughs> was basically the answer I got. Well, you know, I talked to the platform team. I told them what I could do. It took a little bit of work because to Shane's point, like it, it wasn't exactly the cleanest thing to, at the time, to constantly be churning in these new VMs. You got naming, you got IP addresses, you know, you got to make sure that DNS isn't puking all over the place. Um, but you know, it literally took a week to sort out and I was able to take develop developer productivity and give them, um, basically 16 to 32 hours a month back. <laughs> right. And it wasn't perfect. You know, they still had, you know, 15 to 30 minutes worth of work afterwards. Uh, I don't know where they are with it today. Um, but I see those similar types of things happening with containers in that, um, we're, we're organizations still are dealing with the largest common denominator of what they can distribute from an image and how much needs to be applied for your particular build or for your particular application. Yeah, in some ways, this I think it goes to change management, and the software world really hasn't. Most of the software world hasn't been involved with change management because everything's just been so custom artisanal and you didn't have huge manufacturing, huge assembly lines. What Rob and Shane are doing are for these huge manufacturing, uh, essentially assembly. So finding a way to introduce the discipline of change management boards and tracking uh, these changes in documentation and stuff and getting sign off when, on some of the big stuff might be something useful for uh, both 
the cute the software world, but also for the immutable image world. If you had oh, just something that said every time we need to make a change, we make an active decision that this change has to happen, uh, then that might be and there that might be something worthwhile as an extra tracking p tool for extremely large installations. You're on mute, Rob. <laughs> Thanks, Tracky. Part of the part of the way I wonder about this though is that if what what we could be doing is is literally slipstreaming all of those changes. Right. So instead of it being a deliberate oh, it's time to do the patch, you know, it, it would, uh, and maybe this is my idealism talking, so it might not be practical, but it would seem like we should be setting up systems so that we're constantly rolling an update. Like, we, uh, you know, we know that every machine in this infrastructure is going to be reset, replaced, re-imaged inside of, you know, a, a one-month or a two-week period or some, some time frame. And then build all the infrastructure around it to say, okay, I, any every machine is going to get reimaged, so I have to have a way to you know, exit the cluster and reset the machine. I have to be able to you know notify systems that the that they're that this is that we're going out. I have to be constantly rebuilding my image. I need to be constantly tweaking my bio stuff. And uh, and if there's something that goes wrong in that process, I need to have a failsafe so that I don't, you know. I don't. I don't reprovision my data center with a bad image either. Um, I fear that that makes the assumption that package packages that pushed are pristine and free of bugs. You can't. You well, I mean, you can't yeah. introduce a, a, a change. I mean, at least in my world, you can't introduce a change like that into a production environment on a consistent basis, and then worry about. Are my results of my computations going to change based upon some underlying thing? I mean, you know, I, I change, I change, you know, I, I update to the latest version of X. What is it going to change in my? No, that's I. I agree with you. This is the dependency graph that I was thinking through. Um, is so problematic, um, and it's almost impossible to test. So if, if, if somebody patches a library underneath the covers on you and it changes the output, like what this happens says all the effing time, right? We get a vendor with a BIOS, um, you know, patches a tool that we use for BIOS and they change the output thinking it's a minor change that nobody would know about. And all of a sudden the downstream tools that consume that are breaking. And, and yeah. they may not even put it in. We may not even put it in. We certainly won't put it into something like QA because they don't know what your end usage is. So there's no way to validate it unless you have way to validate it unless you have. Greg, could you secure the loop? Well, I'm wondering if we're conflating two things, right? Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Fairly, you're a little quiet. Fairly, you're a little quiet. All right, well, then just skip me continue on sorry no, I, I want to hear what we're conflating well to me to me we're conflating two things one and I, I view this from the aircraft analogy well i think it's kind of interesting it doesn't right deploying and 
propagating software is not a manufacturing kind of event, at least not from a physical perspective. And so one of the things that we've seen in our some of our customers is when they've gotten their mindset around changing, being able to deploy deploy consistently and thinking of it as a rebuild process versus a patch process, once they get that mindset out of the way, they don't merge the concept of deploying and validating a system. Those aren't the two, those aren't the same thing, right? And when you think about the aircraft manufacturing system, it's do something, test something, do something, test something. And because you can't really go backwards. In the case of software deployment, most of the time, in fact, I would argue you can almost make it always, that it's ephemeral, it's virtual, right? So you could always tear down and start over. Now, you may have requirements, you may not be designed for it, and those are issues to resolve over time, but there's the how do I deploy it, and can I deploy it in a fast enough fashion that all of these other concerns we were talking about kind of dwindle away to nothing. And then there's, do I validate what I deployed is viable for me to continue before I roll it out to production? And if we can separate those two concerns to some degree and think about those as two different problems, I think a wider range of solutions open to what we actually want to try and solve, if that makes sense. Yeah, and Greg, I, yeah, I want to push Greg, back on just one, one component on of what you were saying in that, you know, when we talk about like imaging infrastructure, whether it's a, a desktop, laptop, server, whatever, um, we have to distinguish two types of automated changes or automated implementations. And one of those is, is it firmware OS? Like there, there are changes that you cannot or often may not want to try to back out of. Um, because it can have really, really bad consequences. Um, and I've always taken the stance on if, if, if it's a switch that you're toggling or it's a configuration or if it's something that, um, you know, you can very quickly turn around and change it back if it doesn't work, then your process there should be 100% fully automated, fully documented in Git or whatever your repository is. Like all of those things should never have a human ever toggle it in the GUI, ever. Um, but you need to be mindful on anything that is changing the long-term state of that system. And that's whether you're changing underlying kernel, changing drivers, changing, um, uh, I'm trying to think of an, another really great example. Um, database, can, database schema. Sure, data, database schema. That's that's another great example, right? Any Anybody who tries to revert a database schema is in for a really long, painful, whatever period of time that's going to be. Um, and, and I think even though we have this increasingly large um, portfolio of applications that are built to be more immutable and to be able to flip back and forth, it's still not everything. <laughs> There's still so much software that runs into these exact kind of um, dependencies that still have to be, you know, accounted for and then engineered to support.
I'm going to just assume I said yeah, something this... profound there. <laughs> no, you did. I, well, I, I think that there's right there. Part of what you're describing to me is this canary, the canary scenarios that we, um, you know, it's weird. There's times when I feel like containers have set our, set us back in conversations we were in progress of process of having. Um, although to be fair with like one of the benefits of uh, Kubernetes is that they actually do a post release that post release automation that you could build into the, Hey, my container's up. That's something for me, whether you gate it that way or not, a different question. But um, what you're describing to me is a very similar process that we need to have on, on any of the automation, pro you know, all the immutable automation we build, Greg's point, you could roll it back if there's some mistake, if there's some problem. Um, I haven't seen, you know, us getting asked for that, the extent that it would be nice to have. I, it's hard to build. Um, so I, well, I mean, there's a lot of variables at play, and this this ties into the the second major challenge in this that I feel like I've run into most consistently over the last, let's say, 15 years, is that the quality of documentation and the learning at you know of of your admins or engineers that are involved with these systems is limited. Um, the number of times I've had to utilize undocumented workarounds or, or ways of automating into a platform, um, it's it's actually painful to think about. Um, but and and sometimes finding things that um, were built to work a certain way, but were never documented, right? And you know, to what Shane was highlighting earlier about you know, doing these, you know, deploying out you know desktop. Uh, or laptop images and then the software um, more often than not, I had to file tickets with the software provider to find out how to do a, um, a silent install, even though that they had provided a silent installer, right. Or, it, you know, connected in with Microsoft silent installer. I just forgot what it's called. Um, but they, they had it, but all their variables and parameters were not published anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like, all right, well, it's great. You, you made this possible, but you didn't inform anybody in a way that, you know, the average person who doesn't know how to dig in can actually get that information. I, this would be a good place to share some of our battle scars with VMware installs, but yes. Right. I mean, Shane, Shane, you've been on the pointy end of that stick quite a bit uh, the whole the whole team has of like oh yeah you can only set this this thing that needs to get set from the command line this thing can only get set from an api this thing can only get set yeah. from offside nope. outside the box yeah go ahead and this thing is undocumented and you have to talk to vmware to set it <clears throat> yes um, so it, which goes back to my earlier comments that um Automation tools or tools that can be automated are great, but you have to be able to weave, weave together dozens of them at a time uh, to be successful to automate all the things because there is nothing out there, period, end of story, that automates all of the things. Um, one of the things I wanted to touch on real briefly, I, I don't know if Greg is, knows he's on mute. I'm, I'm sure he wanted to respond a bit to Josh's statements, but 
completely agree about the, uh, the the problems with updating and how that changes state of underlying things. And it's one of the reasons um, Greg was touching on um, is you're, you have to have the ability to describe the state and, and drive the system to a given state over and over, mutate what that new state is going to be, and then drive to that new state. And that's um, something that we do with, you know, BIOS firmware RAID. Um, but there are clear problems, uh, which you touched on also, Josh, which was um, particularly going backwards is hard to um, oftentimes not possible, <laughs> right? And so in the case of firmware flash updates as systems, uh, vendors may give to it, but we found that you will almost always cut your hand off, not just cut a finger, but cut your hand off if you try and do that. Um, and so uh, rolling forward is often a, a much easier problem to solve than rolling backwards. Um, in some cases, you, you simply can't roll backwards um, safely or without significant unintended side effects like Dell platforms. When you roll a, the firmware backwards, it introduces a hard hit F1 on the console to, con to continue. No, you cannot automate that one. <laughs> and so, and that was a bug in their firmware process of going, you know, from one version, you know, back three versions, you just introduced this flaw in their system and that was not automatable <laughs> but um very much I'm so sure there, i'm sure there was a, a conference room conversation where a product manager said nobody should ever do that let's require manual intervention and <laughs> right. i'm absolutely certain i've been in meetings Exactly like that. <laughs> and and that was actually the moment that unicorns no longer existed in the world. <laughs> the very last one lost its life at that moment. I think it was a herd of them, actually, but yeah. Yeah. or is it a flight of unicorns? I don't know. Uh, but yes, um, the, the ability to weave tools together, I think, is critical because, you, like you say, you're jumping between different tools and then uh, trying to reveal the layers of undocumented or misdocumented uh, behaviors is often extremely frustrating. And, and I don't remember if it was Simon or uh, our dearly departed Mike, um, but um, mentioned earlier that... Um, Oh, I just lost the thread on that. <laughs> Someone's making lunch in the kitchen, so I'm like, hmm, mm, lunch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my stomach's rumbling. Uh, it does no, smell um, good. Had <laughs> mentioned um, that. Um, yeah, I'll have to come back to it because I don't remember what the point was there. Well, Shane, I weaving the tools together. Yeah, so I, I actually wanted to pull on that thread a little bit. Um, Having you know, my earlier automation efforts was VB script, batch files, um, you know, early PowerShell when it was, you know, when it first came out, um, and and then watching PowerShell become more and more extensible, especially for VMware, uh, Dell, uh, HP. You know, they all started adopting PowerShell, and it, it became a NetApp. EMC eventually, Cisco, UCS, you know, eventually had a, now it's a, you know, fantastic PowerShell module. Um, that was like the earliest moment where I felt like I was able to 
automate an end-to-end process for like bringing ESXi host into an environment, getting it up to, um, you know, getting it available to join the, you know, a cluster and serve workload. I was able to automate that from the time that the, you know, the NIC got plugged in and the power got powered on. Right. And I was able to do that all with PowerShell. Uh, something I wasn't able to do previously easily because it required to the point you were outlining um, sometimes manual interventions or some other you know, mechanism that you know, wasn't easily programmed. Um, what I thought was a great evolution beyond that, but I don't think has gotten nearly enough adoption um, are tools like um, v- VMware vCenter Orchestrator, right? Which has the ability to serve as your orchestration mechanism and whether you're running a script, whether you're making a, you know, a known execution um, against a, a VMware tool or you know, someone who has an automation pack for Orchestrator. Um, that was the first tool I ever worked with that I could get an end-to-end solution um, and be able to piece all of these things together and maintain some level of singular view, if you will. I could, I could see the entire workflow from a single location, regardless of what tools were being applied. Um, and, and without having to dig through a bunch of code and, and if statements and weird calls. How did, how did they, how did they attach the agent from that perspective? For orchestrator? Yeah, um, most of it was remote calls. It was all you have to have access. Uh, you, some things you could use VMware tools or you, you, you create, you would create a connector to infrastructure and then you would choose that connector whenever you wanted to execute something. So you say, I want to connect to this NetApp filer. Here is my pre-cached, pre-saved connection authentication. You know, your SSL certificate and everything is there. It's already authenticated and it would utilize that. And you know, it's an account that is specified for automation um, for, for that orchestrator instance. And so you could track who did what and when and where by looking in the logs, throw that into Splunk, and you can see like how the environment was being provisioned and by what automated system. It takes a little thought and a little work, but um, very effective. It's the, the thing I'm like thing I'm thinking through is like the, the mess that we created with CloudInit. And, you know, bringing systems online from that perspective and having, you know, basically, you know, CloudNet, you're pre-wiring, you know, a script to run pulling from a known, a known address. Um, and it's, it's a nice little, it's a nice little hack. To me, that, that's been, people underestimate how important CloudNet's been in cloud adoption from that perspective. And I was, you, but your comment made me remember back in my early days in using virtual machines, we used to, uh, Attach and we used to build a custom ISO for every machine that we would attach to, with an agent and a GUID in it. And then um, when the machine turned on, we would attach the ISO and then take advantage of the fact that Windows would automatically install the ISO and run. You know, you could auto run, put an auto run script in there, and yep. it would it would yep. do its thing. Um, yeah. Uh, jumping back to Josh's points there. Um, most of what I, as far and I haven't run VRO myself, um, so I'm only going from the glossies and experience from other people's conversations. But uh, one of the problems I see with that is it's an external integration to APIs, 
mm-hmm. which is great if those exist. Yes. Um, part of the problem exists is we run into regularly problems, even in VMware's world, um, where you don't have automation or APIs or tools. For example, if you would like to update the um, PAM that the um, password requirements on a VMware ESXi machine, you must enable SSH, you must SSH into it or have a remote console to it. You yep. must log into it and you must modify files and you must restart ESXi. There is no API, there is no ESX CLI tool or ESX uh, config tool to do that. And so our journey to be able to do those sorts of things in conjunction with manipulate APIs, in conjunction with running command line tools in ESXi, and Rob alluded to this, um, I'm, I specifically and, and Greg uh, and Victor on the call here as well have a bunch of battle scars and wounds on our arms from um, these problems <laughs> in, in weaving these tools together. Um, you know, for example, the PowerShell uh, PowerCLI uh, issue and, and weaving uh, Rob's custom ISO issue, which is an ESXi problem um, that I hate dearly, um, is frustrating because the only way you can build custom ISOs for ESXi is with PowerShell PowerCLI on Windows. Mm-hmm. Full stop. End of story. So now we have to go automate Windows, put our agent in in place for it, automate PowerShell scripts to automate building uh, PowerShell PowerCLI environments to build custom ISOs. And then we have to turn those custom ISOs into boot environments that we can then launch and boot and install from. So, oh. yes. <laughs> I, uh, and, then, and then to add insult to injury, you set up that system and then you try to to use it on a global environment with tens of thousands of, you know, for, you know, you know, thousands of ESX, ESXi hosts, tens upon tens of thousands of virtual machines. And now your processes end up overtaxing the machine. So you do geographically distributed uh, PowerShell, you know, jump boxes, if you will, that all synchronize to a single repository pre Git. <laughs> it's much better with Git, but, um, and just to be able to distribute that workload. And now you have to build a scheduler on top of, yeah, it's a, it, it can be a complete and total mess. <laughs> this is why Hotmail back in the uh, early 2000s had free BSD underneath all their machines and when they were distributing new versions of their front end machines, which ran Windows, they would build the image on the Windows and they would actually boot into FreeBSD, load up the image, and then boot, it, uh, boot back into the Windows image. So yes, Windows has always been a problem. I wish they would clean it up, but even folks who worked for Microsoft couldn't get them to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Rob's um, thinking. <laughs> and yeah, we're, so, we're at the top of the hour, by the way. Oh, yeah. But yeah, there's the, the whole thing is, is architecture along a lot of these things. It's how do you make people aware that architecture includes uh, build and deployment. <laughs> Only the ops folks know that it does. It's an ops. It's, uh, that's well, what's we, interesting is our, our imaging conversation is actually about all the things around imaging, not, not mm-hmm. imaging. 
and the the whole reason for images is because all the things around don't work properly or that the images don't work properly because people don't think about software as product and immutable they think about it as code <laughs> but it should be in the end become immutable It, what we find is that there's a lot of people who want to do image deployment, but the exact thing we're talking about, which is a systems problem, and just you, you don't get to just do image deployment. You you have to think through these other things. Is the core? That's that's the challenge here. Is that it's it's not a but it's a transformation process. It's not a feature that you can just implement. Not as much. All right, we'll, we'll continue. We'll continue the topic. I'm glad I was able to join today. My schedule is kind of crazy. It's great to see all of you as well. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. Right. Cheers. See you soon. Thanks. Cheers. Anytime we talk about image-based deployment, there is so much more to discuss. Um, down in the weeds on the tech uh, or on thinking about how to make the process go and battle stories uh, to explain uh, where things work and where they don't. Uh, we will keep talking about things like this, so please join us at the2030.cloud. See you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.